Blog Talk Radio. Radio, a monthly holistic lifestyle show focused on the continual evolution into the best versions of our authentic selves. This is Justina, your host, and the founder of Intersections Match, the only matchmaking and dating coaching company focused on South Asian singles throughout North America. As a dating coach and matchmaker, I'm always interested in fresh perspectives from authors, researchers, and experts to help me provide unparalleled service to our clients. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Helen Fisher to our show today. Dr. Fisher is an anthropologist, human behavior, behavior researcher, and author. She is a professor at Rutgers University and has studied romantic interpersonal attraction for over 30 years. Dr. Fisher is a leading expert on the biology of love and attraction and is the most referenced scholar in the love research community. In 2005, she was hired by Mass.com to build Chemistry.com, which used her research and experience to create both hormone-based and personality-based matching systems. She was one of the main speakers in the 2006 and 2008 TED Conference, and I had the pleasure of shooting a Your Tango Expert video series with Dr. Fisher in New York City, and thought she had valuable insights to share with our listeners. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fisher. Thank you, Justina. Just call me Helen. Nice to see you again. Oh, great, to, great to hear you. And uh, well, actually, let's just jump in. And as an anthropologist and human behavior researcher, what do you believe are a few of the greatest gender differences in the way men and women approach finding life partners? What have you found? Um, I think that what will surprise uh, people is that the men fall in love uh, uh, more often. Uh, men fall in love much faster. And when men um, meet somebody that they really do fall in love with, they want to introduce that person to friends and family sooner. Um, they like more public displays of, a, of, of affection, and they want to move in sooner. Uh, in many respects, men uh, tend to be more romantic than women. And I think for good evolutionary reasons. I mean, women are the custodian of the egg. We're the ones that can, uh, mm-hmm. you know, hold that baby for nine months inside ourselves. And then, you know, everywhere in the world, women spend more time raising children under the age of four. So uh, men seem to be uh, somewhat more romantic than women are. Aha, uh-huh. yeah, you've already hit. You're actually pre- and My next question is about misconceptions. I think you already addressed some of them, right? In terms of what, <laughs> what are the greatest misconceptions regarding the way men and women approach finding life partners. And I love this because you have, you know, that empirical evidence there to, you know, debunk a lot of these myths. Any other misconceptions come to mind that might, you know, pleasantly surprise or just surprise our listeners in any case? Well, all kinds of things. I mean, uh, I, sure. I wrote a whole book on uh, gender differences in the brain. But one of the things that is one of my pet peeves is that we 
we live in a society where people think that uh, women are less sexually, um, interest, less interested in sex than men. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And as an anthropologist, you know, when you go into uh, tribal societies or hunting and gathering societies, these people don't think that women are any less sexual than men are. Um, and we come from, you know, 10,000 years of of believing that a woman's place is in the home, that uh, they want attachment and men want to be adulterous, et cetera, et cetera. And we, have a, some, we mm-hmm. go into relationships thinking that women are interested in sex, which is not true. Um, in fact, uh, and I also often wonder about why everybody thinks that men are more adulterous than women are. I mean, f- actually, all of our data does show that men are more adulterous than women are. But, okay. um, but, but um, in, in younger generations who did not grow up with the double sexual standard, uh, where women uh, you know, work for a living, where mo- a lot of women make just as much money as their husbands do, the data is mm-hmm. that women are just as adulterous as men. And, in fact, uh, I often think that men and women are in collusion here. I mean, men seem to want to think that men are more adulterous, and women want men to think that men are more adulterous, and so they simply agree on all this stuff. But, you know, in one recent study... They asked um, a whole lot of people, you know, uh, how many uh, uh, sexual encounters they'd had in the last year. And sure enough, okay. uh, men said that they'd had many more than women. Then they lo- uh, hooked up a group of people to a lie detector. And sure enough, <laughs> women had just as many sex partners as men did. So I think we're we're moving under a whole lot of misconceptions. I mean, we've spent 50 years trying to figure out who women are. And I think now it's time to figure out who men are, too. Interesting. Now, you know, actually, you just since you mentioned adultery, I wanted to ask you a question. Are there different reasons for the adultery, you know, gender-wise? Does it split along genders in terms of the reasons for the adultery, or would it be found along those lines? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for adultery, and I'm going to give you yeah. only just a few of them. But anyway, if anybody wanted to see, what I did was a meta-analysis. I looked at all of the data okay. on adultery, and I wrote an article called, uh, I think something called Infidelity, When, Where, Why, or something. It's on my website, HelenFisher.com, if somebody okay. wants to look up the full thing. But um, sure. um, the reasons for adultery... There's many, many, many reasons. I mean, some people, mm-hmm. you know, um, want to solve a sex problem. Uh, some people uh, want more sex. Some people want to uh, get caught and patch up a relationship. Some people want to get caught and end a relationship. Some people want to supplement a relationship. Some people want to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get lonely when their partner's out of town. Somebody, Some people want to walk on the wild side. I mean, those are some psychological reasons. There's all kinds of reasons. I mean, if a woman is very dependent, dependent on um, a man for his financial uh, for financial stability. She's going to be less likely to be adulterous, and on and on and on, uh, various mm. reasons for adultery. But one of the things that I find most interesting in the adultery literature is they asked a group of people, um, uh, you know, why they were adulterous. And as it turns out, something like 54% of men were in a very happy marriage when they were adulterous, whereas uh, uh, 36% of women were in a very happy marriage when they were adulterous. So so that means that there's a certain number of people who are out there being adulterous when, in fact, they are in a, in a good, solid, you know, relatively healthy, I suppose, uh, partnership 
which makes me as an anthropologist begin to wonder why there could be some evolutionary reasons that we will go and do something that really in this society is, is not to our advantage. Interesting. Wow. Um yeah. And in fact, I, I mean, I've looked into some of the biology of, of I mean, there are some some genes that uh, well, are likely to make somebody more susceptible to adultery. That doesn't mean that okay. you're going to be more adulterous. I mean, some people are more susceptible to alcoholism or smoking cigarettes sure. or eating too much for biological reasons. And they say, no, they don't do it. So but the bottom line is we do vary in our our, our desire for risk, our desire for sex our desire for adventure, et cetera, et cetera. So some people are going to be more prone to it than others. Okay. Well, now, interesting. Let's say, you know, from a biological perspective, why do you think, and I know you wrote a whole book on this, but why do you think we fall in love with one person rather than another? You know, from a, I know there, there are psychological reasons. There are many different, but from a biological perspective, what have you found? Yeah, um, uh, well, we know from a psychological uh, uh, perspective you tend to fall in love with mm-hmm. somebody from uh, the same socioeconomic background, same general level mm-hmm. of intelligence, same general level mm-hmm. of good looks, uh, same religious and social values. Your childhood certainly plays a role. But I wanted mm-hmm. to know the second half of the puzzle. I mean, are we okay. naturally, biologically drawn to some people rather than than others? And that's, this was my book, Why Him, Why Her?, and what mm-hmm. I ended up finding, this was my work with Match.com, I found that people, uh, I created a questionnaire that 14 million people have now taken in, in 40 cultures. And as it turns out, I think that we've evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems. And people are very expressive of the dopamine system. They tend to be novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, and those people tend to be drawn to people like themselves. They want somebody who's going to get up off the couch at 7 o'clock and go to the opera or go <laughs> swimming in the dark or or ride their bikes to a different uh, uh, restaurant in town, et cetera, et cetera. The high serotonin type, the people who tend to be traditional, conventional, follow the rules, respect authority, um, uh uh, like rules and schedules, tend to be more religious, uh, tend to be quite conscientious. They also go for people like themselves. Conscientious, traditional people go for people like themselves. In those two cases, mm-hmm. similarity attracts. In the other two cases, opposites seem to attract. People who are very expressive of the uh, testosterone system tend to go for those who are expressive of the estrogen system and vice versa. And these two types are... Uh, the high testosterone type, I call these directors, they, they, and it could be women as well as men. There's lots of women with high testosterone, but many more men. And um, these people tend to be analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, tend to be skeptical, tend to be good at mm-hmm. things like engineering or math or computers or mechanics or music. And sure enough, mm-hmm. they go for the kind of person um, who's high estrogen, mostly women, uh, these people mm-hmm. tend to be imaginative, intuitive, very good people skills, very good verbal skills, um, uh, compassionate, empathetic, uh, 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 and emotionally expressive. So, And sure enough, the high estrogen types, the emotionally expressive, verbal skills, people skills, imaginative type, um, they go for the high testosterone, the analytical, logical, direct, decisive type. So... Uh, I, I go into great detail in uh, my book mm-hmm. on uh, on all these. So I mean that's a that's a 
thumbnail sketch of it. And of course, yeah, we're all a combination sure. of all of these types. I, I for example, uh, score very high on my own scales in um, in dopamine and estrogen. So I tend to be the explorer type uh, and the you know hopefully verbally skilled uh, people hopefully people skilled uh, <laughs> uh-huh. type. And I, and sure enough, I go for men who are similar to me in the dopamine scale, similar to being risk taking, novelty seeking, curious, creative, spontaneous, but different from me in terms of the estrogen testosterone scale. I I go for guys who are more narcissistic <laughs> and um, and uh, high testosterone type. So. I've never met two people who are alike. Uh, I'm an identical twin, and even we are not exactly alike. No two people are alike. But there's patterns to nature. There's patterns to personality. There's patterns to per- uh, and there's patterns to mate choice, and that's what I'm trying to understand. And you know, once you get to understand these things, you don't blame people as much. You begin to understand. Oh, he's just naturally that way. You know, I don't have to work around that or do it a little differently so that he can hear me, etc. It's very, it's been very valuable for me personally, of all my books. It's been very valuable for me to write this book, uh, Why Him, Why Her, and about these personality styles. Yeah, and I, I want to say, but you know, kind of you know, dovetailing with that, what I really appreciated about that book is, like you said, you identified that, you laid it out, that these are the patterns, and then it was like, okay, now if you find yourself in a partnership X, Y, and Z, like you said, this is how we work with our differences, and kind of our become the sum becomes, you know, the whole becomes greater than the parts because we they're complementary in this way and that way, and I love that aspect of it because it's like here you find yourself in this, so how do we? How can we, you know, make something great of this? So you make it an asset. Exactly. In terms of these differences. And um, I love that. Um, now, you, know, you know, it's so interesting. Just, in, in, sorry. Go ahead. No, please. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to give an example. Um, you know, I yeah. went out for many, many years with the with the man before he died, and and you know, he never he hated the word relationship. He didn't want mm. to talk about anybody's feelings. But you know what? I okay. knew what his feelings were. I didn't need to go there with him. But anyway, I once said to him, but I'm a very standard woman in that I get intimacy out of talking with somebody, knowing how they're mm-hmm. feeling, knowing what they're thinking. I'm very standard for mm-hmm. the high estrogen type, and I am that type. So one day mm-hmm. I said to him, I said, what, what is intimacy to you if mm-hmm. it's not talking and that? And he said, it's doing things with you, Helen. And I began to say, oh, okay, well, doing things with him from my perspective is wonderful fun, but it doesn't necessarily generate that kind of intimacy that's real intimacy to me, but it is Mm -hmm. that to him. And so I had to restructure my understanding of what he felt and how he felt it and when he felt it and when I, I didn't feel that myself, but... It made me a lot more understanding to realize that that was intimacy to him. Mhm. And then, yeah, what I love about that, and then you could really, his gestures and his romantic gestures, you could see it in that lens, and it's not, it's from his perspective, and you can see it from his perspective, because of, wow, he did this, and for him, it meant X, Y, and Z, right? And you can appreciate it in a different way. Um, exactly. That's, that's wonderful. I Now, you know, I know you mentioned your work with Match.com, and, you know, for us, you know, in addition to our core one-to-one matchmaking, we have an online dating support offering. So I know that some of our audience, you know, we hand-told our clients through that online dating process. So I am very curious, based on your research and work with Match.com and the surveys and all, what suggestions might you have for men, you know, we'll start with men, 
using online dating for the purpose, because certainly people use online dating for all different purposes. We're talking about that subsect, you know, of men who are using online dating for the purpose of finding a life partner. So for those men, any suggestions come to mind based on, you know, like your vast research and your, you know, your empirical findings and surveys and all of this? Anything in terms of some nuggets you might give to our, our male listeners who are, yeah, wanting to date online more strategically given their goals for dating online? Yeah, well, great. Well, first of all, um, all of my data with Match.com and Chemistry.com indicate that the vast majority of both men and women are actually looking for a partner. When we ask the question, what are you looking for, in one uh, one study, only 3% said, I just want to date a lot of people. The vast majority are actually looking for a partner. So, uh, and that, of course, really encouraged me because I'm in that business yeah. and <laughs> it's nice yeah, to know yeah. who your clients are. But anyway, these Absolutely. are the things that I would say, not only to men, but to okay. women too. Two things. Foremost, um, um, think of reasons to say yes. One of the problems with online dating is that we mm-hmm. get the feeling, it's called cognitive overload. We get the feeling that there's a million okay. people out there and we should try one and then another and another and, oh, mm-hmm. this one doesn't have this and so I'll try that. The bottom line is um, when you first meet somebody, you online and then you meet them in a, in a, in a bar or in a coffee house, mm-hmm. you know so little about them that you overweight what you do yes. know about them. And all mm-hmm. the data show that the more you get to know somebody, the more you like them and the more you think that they are like you. So, um, if you, you know, if you like somebody at all on the first date, get to know them more. Don't quit after the first date. Get to know them on the second date and the third date, and you will begin to see an awful lot of things about them that you hadn't known before. You'll have more data to make a decision on. So that's one. Uh, think of reasons to say yes. Get past that first date. And by the way, don't stay on the internet talking to person. Get out and meet them because yes, maybe, thank you, you know, for saying that. <laughs> yeah, I mean the bottom the time, line I, is yes. What? Go ahead. No, I, okay. I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I I didn't mean to emphasize, but I wanted to, like, I telecise what you just said because I apologize for that interruption. Um, no, that's quite all right. So, yeah, yeah, but I, I love what you just said. Um, but please continue, but I love that. Yeah, um, I mean, you've got to get out and meet them. I mean, the only real algorithm is your own mm-hmm. human brain. And you've got to hear them, you've got to see them, you've got to listen to them, you've got to share your life with them, et cetera, and make that effort. And and that's the only way to do it. Number one, that's number one. So think of reasons okay. to say yes, get past the first date, mm-hmm. and get out there and meet the person. Number one. Number two, mm-hmm. after you've met nine people, pick one of them to get to know better. The reason being is you don't want to get caught up in this cognitive overload, this spinning around like a like a mouse mm-hmm. in a treadmill, constantly looking, 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 because the more you do that, the less likely you are going to be to find anybody at all. And so I say nine people only because there have been some studies that say that mm-hmm. when you walk into a room, don't know anybody, and there's 100 people in that room, after you've met nine people in that room, you will actually statistically have, have met the full array of personality styles. So bottom line is, um, you know, get to know the people, get out there and looking, and after you've met nine, 
just pick one to get to know better so you don't get into this whirlwind of just keeping looking. Interesting. Now, you know, it's sort of dealt with this, um, you know, meeting someone and then, you know, you know, letting yourself meet them again to get to know them better. Do you believe or, you know, have you seen studies with respect to whether attraction, just attraction, can grow over time? So if you have that first meeting with someone and, you know, it's there or it's not there, is that something that can grow? What have you found? It, it not only can grow, but I do a national study, but it does grow. I, I mean, I'll, and the data we've got is just elegant. Um, we, mm-hmm. you know, with Match, I do an annual study called Singles in America. And we don't pull the Match mm-hmm. population. We pull the American population. So it's a representative sample based on the U.S. Census. And what one of the questions I ask is, have you ever initially not found somebody attractive at all and eventually fallen in love with them. And over every year that I ask it, over 35% of people say yes. So, and there's other data now showing that, uh, you know, the more you get to know somebody, um, the more you like them. A very wonderful study was done by a scientist who put all, you know, it was a lot of people. I I, I might have some of the mm-hmm. details wrong, but you'll get the point. Okay. Um, sure. I, I, it, was a, it was a group of, I think it was students in a, in a college environment. And on the first day of a particular large class, they rated how much they thought everybody was attractive in the room. And sure okay. enough, the most good-looking people were scored highest, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Then they asked the same group of people after, I don't know, after towards the end of the semester, you know, whether they um, – uh, who was attractive, and it had entirely mm-hmm. changed. Some people who nobody would have regarded as attractive initially became extremely attractive. And, of course, it's because now you've discovered they've got a wonderful sense of humor. Um, they're very gracious with their, you know, with their comments. Um, they're just a likable, funny, charming, educated person in spite of the fact they may be a little too short or a little too tall mm-hmm. or a little too heavy mm-hmm. or a little too this mm-hmm. or that. And some of these other people who were initially regarded as extremely, you know, attractive uh, had had uh-huh. lost a lot of their charm because you got to know them. I love that. So, you know, give that second. I, you know, to me that message is, you know what? Give that date another shot unless they're red flags or give it another shot because Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you, you know, you mentioned that the the survey data, and I think that's, that's very interesting. So, this is based not on the match, you know, dot com subscribers, but in more general, sort of at large. So, what anything that just surprised you? Anything from the most recent survey that you saw that you know was unexpected or surprised you in any way? Well, uh, there's many, many things, but two Ah, of the ones that I really like. (laughs) Uh, One of them is that gays and lesbians are just like heterosexuals. I mean, they fall in love just as often. Uh, They're eager for deep attachments. Uh, They spend uh, just as many nights at home by themselves, you know, cooking their dinner. They're just like everybody else. Who they fall for is different, but how they feel when they fall in love, how they court, et cetera, is it's just exactly the same. So um, that, um, I think, needs to be said. The other thing yeah. is I'm older, of course, and, and um, you know, uh, I'm a senior uh, citizen, mm-hmm. and um, we're just like everybody else. We've had just as many one-night stands. I'm not saying I have, but the bottom line is <laughs> this group of people <laughs> have had just as many one-night stands. They've had just as many... Um, uh, uh, friends with benefits, uh, they're the least mm-hmm. likely to want to marry. 
which I can understand. Least I mean, marriage. Least likely to want to. Okay. Sure. Least likely to want to marry. The older okay. you get, the less and less likely you are, because you know. I mean, when you think of it from a Darwinian evolutionary perspective, I mean, mm-hmm. marriage evolved for having babies and and passing sure. your DNA on. And the people sure. in their twenties and thirties are the most eager to marry and settle down because they've got a job yeah. to do. They got a They've got to have babies sure. and and pass on their DNA and 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 build a family life. But the farther you get, your forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, it is the less and less likely you are uh, to want to uh, to wed. These people, older people, are not desperate. Um, in fact, a wonderful question mm-hmm. that I always loved asking. It was, would you make a long term commitment to somebody who had everything you were looking for, but you were not in love with them? And the least likely to make a long-term commitment without romantic love were people in their 60s and 70s and 80s. It's the young who ah, need to yeah. to make some compromises in order to pick the right partner uh, to um, have babies with. So I think we have a misunderstanding well, that, of gays yeah. and straights, and I think we've got a misunderstanding of older people and men. Interesting. But like you said, that actually makes sense when you look at sort of the reasoning, the rationale, and kind of it, that makes a lot of sense, but interesting. Okay. Well, you know, I, and I really appreciate the sort of different, and I believe this too with our clients, like different stages are sort of looking for different things, right? And certain things that are important in your 20s, 30s become not so much in your 50s, 60s, let's say, and the reverse. And I do believe right. that. So I think lumping all singles together can be sort of, um, it can be misconstrued, and it could it could be not counterproductive for that reason. But that said, I'm still going to ask. I think that's a really good point. Can, yeah, yeah, and, and I feel that. Uh, and by the way, um, most of our studies of sexuality are on college students because that's where the professors ah. are, and that's where they can get in a, sure. a group of people. And it is my sure. um, hypothesis that in your late teens and early twenties, that the sexes are the least alike. Because women are the most likely to get pregnant, so they're going to be a little bit more picky. And men mm. almost have nothing to lose uh, uh, by sleeping around. So, I mean, um, you know, I think as the sexes get older, they get more alike. And that is not shown yeah. in most of our academic studies. Given, the, given, the, given who you're studying. They haven't that studied older people, or they haven't studied older compared to younger. And then the in the same questionnaires. Yeah. And, and the hormone, I, is, hormones are don't are men's estrogen levels are different, right? Later, later on in life, they are typically early on too, right? Things like that are big factors. I, I was saying. Absolutely, you're right. Yeah. I mean, as okay. men get older, okay. levels of testosterone go down. They rise. And a man who was oh. didn't didn't spend a lot of time with his children suddenly spends a lot more time with his grandchildren. Men will yeah. also put more yeah. weight on around their breasts uh, uh, and, um, uh, you know, uh, the way women do. Um, and men become more compassionate as they get older, as testosterone goes down. And women become more assertive. I mean, a postmenopausal woman is much more likely to tell you what she thinks than a sweet young girl. Um, they're more assertive, uh, uh, sure. uh, tend to be quite ambitious, uh, highly motivated, etc. So... I do think the sexes become more alike as they get older. 
That is, that is fascinating, and I think that's so insightful in terms of you've got to really, when you're looking at study, I mean, you have to really kind of put your, you know, the investigative hat on and say, you know, who's being studied here and, you know, what what, should, what do we need to control for? I think that's fascinating. Um, yeah, and what questions are you asking? I mean, you know, the answers you get have something to do with the questions yeah. that you asked. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Hey, you've got Google as a search engine. What you place in there, right? It, it garbage in, garbage out, kind of like your question exactly just dictates the quality. I think of, of the answers, and absolutely. Tell me, um, so unless, because there is so much variation, I would say in different life stages, what someone's looking for, just, I mean, let's just isolate and say someone sort of, because a lot of our audience are going to be sort of looking, you know, in their 30s and they're like trying, looking for sort of marriage for the first time. What are your, what would your top three tips be to singles in that age range looking to probably have a family later on and looking for a life partner? Anything comes to mind from all your research in terms of things that would really be helpful for someone in that kind of headspace head to, uh, to have top, top and center in terms of um, what to look for? I um, what's interesting about today is that we have this what I call a huge pre-commitment stage before okay. tying the knot. You know, a mm-hmm. uh, hundred years ago, you you met somebody at church and you swung on the swing, uh, you know, in the in the uh, on the porch before Sunday lunch, and after getting to know somebody very briefly, you married them. And mm-hmm. these days, it is quite the reverse. What the young are doing now, and people of every age are doing, is real. They really want to get to know the person before they tie the knot. It was interesting. In one study, they asked um, people living together why they hadn't married yet, and 67% said that they were terrified of the legal and emotional issues uh, surrounding divorce. So basically, what I think the young are doing now is going to this huge pre-commitment stage. They're starting with a one-night stand, and if they like the person, they'll see them again. Then they're moving very cautiously into friends with benefits, and then they're moving very cautiously into uh, living together before they marry. And I think an awful lot of Americans think that this is just irresponsible. And I'm not advocating it, but I honestly think that it is, it, it is caution that these days mm-hmm. uh, people want to know everything about their partner before they tie the knot. And I think that that is going to lead to happier marriages. You know, in one questionnaire I did with Match.com of married people, certainly not on Match.com, but regular people, married people, mm-hmm. and I asked among mm-hmm. the questions, I asked, would you remarry the person that you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. And Hmm. that's a lot of people. And I think with more and more people marrying later, spending a long Hmm. time going around with somebody before they marry, I think we're going to actually move perhaps into a generation or more of of happier relationships because they know who this person is. They're marrying later. They've got more tools to keep it together. And um, and actually, women are so much more interesting than they used to be because we're educated now and we've got a lot of our own financial stability. And so I think we're moving in a very optimistic direction. And Thank you for that. And I, and I want to ask you, I know we're running really close to time, but there's one question I really want to ask you, kind of on the heels of what you just said, which is interesting. So, so Helen, our listeners consist of men and women, uh, men and women of a variety of ages and ethnic backgrounds. That said, right, our matchmaking and dating coaching service does focus on South Asians, mainly Indians in North America, who are choosing to opt out, so they're choosing not to go the route of traditional arranged marriages. 
I'm curious, just based on your vast, you know, experience and research, I'm wondering if you have any opinions, any insights, any thoughts uh, of any kind regarding arranged marriage. I'm just really curious. Well, it's very There was a one. Yeah, there was a wonderful book on this called Marriage East to East and West. It was written in the 19, I don't know, even 50s, but it was really good. Okay. And what, among the data is that 10 years after the wedding has taken place, arranged mm-hmm. marriages tend to be just as happy as marriages in which you choose for yourself. Uh, and I'm not surprised because in an arranged marriage, your parents have really been very careful to pick somebody of the same socioeconomic background and level of intelligence. You've got two large families to hold things together. Uh, and a lot of arranged marriages can be extremely happy. In fact, the Indians of India have a word, I don't know the name of it right now, but it's a word during this marriage ceremony, which goes on for days, um, mm-hmm. uh, they have what they call the moment where romantic love enters. And these people expect to fall in love with this partner. They expect their parents to do a good job of serving up some possibilities. They meet this person several times before they actually uh, go through the marriage ceremony. So there's every reason to think that a lot of these marriages uh, are very successful. Now, um, the Chinese have long had... Um, a marriage pattern that has actually not been as successful. But uh, but the bottom line is uh, uh, arranged marriages uh, have, have been very successful in, in, in many ways. So um, that's the best I can say for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your insights with us, Helen. And I'm wondering if there's any last thoughts, any take-home message you'd like to leave our listeners with. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think this is right. Maybe but I just came home from uh, Tajikistan in Central Asia. I did the five stands: okay. Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I had this guide who walked along, and he gave me this quote that I find so interesting. He said, "Love is like war; it's easy to get into and hard to get out of." So I would say, take the time before you get into it, and you may succeed. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us, Helen. It's been an absolute pleasure. And in case you joined us late and would like to share this show with people in your life, I'd like to remind you that today's radio show will be archived and available as a podcast on Intersections Match's website, which is intersectionsmatch.com. appreciate you hanging out with us, and make sure to join us for next month's show. Take care, everyone. that and